Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. My guest today, I'm so, so happy to be speaking with Sophie Lanfear. She's an incredible cinematographer, producer for this amazing Netflix series called Our Planet, made by Silverback Films. It's just an amazing program that moves your heart, moves you to action. I think you've got to be just uh, in a comatose state for the program not to bring you to tears. And Sophie, I'm just so thankful that you're speaking with me today. Truly, you're an inspiration. Pleasure. Thank you for the invite. (laughs) Sophie, are you getting just tons of requests now since Our Planet is out? Um, They're steadily trickling in. It was pretty manic uh, in April when we launched. Um, I was out in the States doing a lot of press and um, I think we had 17 interviews. I've never done anything like that before where you're stuck in a dark room with a camera pointing at you and no one behind it and you're through to Texas, you're through to New York, you're through to, we had all these like radio stations and yeah, it was a bit mental. Um, but you're no, not used to that situation. Definitely not. <laughs> what's your, what, what situation do you feel at home in? Uh, out in the wilderness on my own or with very few people and um, just being very quiet. Um, you know, we spend a lot of our day out watching wildlife and observing the tiny nuance in behavior of animals and often you have to be very quiet not to scare the animals so I guess yeah I'm not used to kind of um, being in front of the camera or being in situations where there's lots of people and um, being asked questions (laughs) like this basically yeah Yeah, it's an unnatural environment (laughs) did did you know that our planet was going to be such a major success when you started working on it um you hope that it is uh, we were really excited about netflix i mean it was five years ago now that this, this project started uh, and netflix was just starting to get big you know you could tell that netflix was going to be a massive platform um from the scale and ambition with you know the countries they wanted to go live in and um so we kind of just guessed that in four years time from when we first got the commission that it would be pretty big I and mean, we didn't know for sure. Um, and we also had David Attenborough lined up quite early on. And so I guess anything that he does, you'd hope um, is popular. <laughs> you and David, you and Sir David Attenborough, I think you seem to be very close friends, right? Um, I've met him a few, I've been very privileged. I went away filming with him uh, for another landmark series that I worked on for the BBC called um, Life Story. And Part of where I started my career was with meerkats. I was um, a meerkat volunteer uh, after I left university. I went out to Cambridge University, have a project site to study them. And I wanted to do a PhD on sociable mammals. So I went out to the meerkat project and they were filming um, a thing called Meerkat Manor out there for Animal Planet. And um, the film crew basically said, don't worry about getting a PhD, just get into filming. And it happened that when I left this, this meerkat project, um, the BBC approached me for a job and that led to my sort of career starting really. And then years later, I think like five or six years after that, I ended up going back and the excuse was, I was like, well, you really need someone there. They wanted to, the opening to the series with David to film meerkats. And I was like, well, you really need someone there that knows meerkats and knows filming and can do both for you. And um, so the director was like, yeah, you come along. So I got to spend a week with David Attenborough back with meerkats um, and kind of taking his picture and sort of watching his pieces to camera for the opening to a series. So that was like a massive, I mean, yeah, dream come true. What year was that? Oh, that must've been 2014, I think. When? Yeah, beginning of 2014. What was your PhD in? Where did you study? Um, and, and transfer me from PhD to meerkat project to <laughs> our planet on Netflix. Okay, I didn't do a P- I didn't actually do a PhD in them, um, but yeah, I will. Uh, so I, um, I guess it all started. Uh, I wanted to. I was in love with animals since an early age, and I wanted to be a vet. I think like every little girl in the whole world wants to help animals. Um, and I guess it's an, it's kind of what the story I tell to everyone who where, where you don't get where you want to be, <laughs> and there's still other career opportunities out there because. Um, I applied to university, I had all the grades, had everything I needed, and I didn't get a single interview for university. So um, I didn't get into vet school. 
And then I was too stubborn to say, well, I will apply again. I was like, well, if they don't want me first time around, they're not having me. So I... <laughs> Good for you. Um, so I went off to Africa. Uh, I had to take a year off. I hadn't planned to, but I had to take a year out to reapply to uni. And um, I went, I worked work my way to get onto a game reserve basically and earn all the money and then that paid for me to go to a game reserve and I got into photography and um and I thought well you know what about wildlife filmmaking so I applied to Bristol University which is where the um it's the hub of kind of global wildlife telly where the natural history history unit is in Bristol so I applied to uni um and got into a course studying psychology zoology at Bristol uh which was amazing and um I did a bit of work experience whilst I was at uni and television and things. Um, and then on the level three notice board, when I went to collect my grades at the end of, um, at the end of the year, I remember walking up the corridor and on the way to get my degree, I um, saw on the board a thing advertising meerkat project wants some volunteers. The level three notice board, I went up and I saw this advert who, you know, were looking for people to who want to go out to the bush in the middle of nowhere and spend a year collecting data on meerkats. And, um, with no cameras, with no cameras there. No cameras. This is just uh, this is just, just science. And, how old are you at this point? Um, so I was twenty. How old are you when you finish uni? Twenty-two, just twenty-two. Is that right? <laughs> Twenty-one, twenty-two, that sort of age. Um, yeah, I just I wanted to get back out to Africa and actually sort of live there and um, just be out in the wilderness, sort of away from people, I guess. And. Um, I went for it was very intimidating because the interview was at Cambridge University uh, you sort of go around there and it's you know yeah Cambridge is an amazing place it's full of like you you walk around the streets there imagining everyone just these great brains behind all the walls thinking of stuff and it's just like where everything happens it's super intimidating um, but I got the place and um, so I went out headed off that summer so like within a month or so I think of leaving uni and getting graduating I went out to Africa and it was winter in the Kalahari and I hit like, it was, gets to like minus five at night. And I all I have was like summer. I remember my first night curled up at the end of my sleeping bag, thinking of like a straw. I was so cold. I was in like this metal caravan that just conducted all the heat out, totally ill-equipped, no like warm clothes. Um, and just free, like literally freezing to death until someone sort of the next morning gave me a big blanket to have in the middle of the night. So um, yeah, it was quite, I don't know, I think it was a bit underprepared, a bit naive. But anyway, I spent 12 months then working, basically collecting behavioral data on meerkats. So you, you're, it's an amazing place. They have like 13 groups of meerkats, totally habituated to people, which means they're not scared of humans, but they're wild, if that makes sense. So they, they, yeah. since they were pups, people have always been around them. So they're not, they don't see you as a threat. So it's incredible. You get to basically become one of them. Um, and so you learn to, you learn all their calls, you learn how they communicate, you learn what they're, saying to each other and you once you tap in once you've been there about six months it takes and you tap into like that alarm call means that and you you look up at the sky for where the aerial predator is as the meerkats do you know it's it's a really bizarre thing i've never had that since because i've never sadly with our filming budgets and things we can't be in the field that long you know we spend for one year yeah for a year so it's, it's a long time to spend um in one place studying one animal and um so you really tap into you know, the sounds, the communication, you understand the behaviors of individual meerkats. That's when you learn a lot about, I learned a lot about kind of wild um, behavior and judging animals, like the differences between characters, the dominant pair of male and female in a group and how they react to subordinates in the group and um, juveniles and how they react to ones above them. And you just, it was a really good foundation for everything I now do in my career, which is sort of tuning into the natural world and to the wild behaviors going on so yeah i kind of learned i guess the dna of what i do was all learned there really do you remember the moment when you fell in love with wildlife filmmaking is there a moment uh do you know it's a funny one wildlife filmmaking because the filmmaking part comes so late like so i've been doing this God, how am i now 36 so i've been no 36 Seven. <laughs> so I've been doing this since I was pretty much 22. Um, so 15 years and I only just made, Our Planet was the first film I produced, the Frozen Worlds episode. Um, so the actual producing one hour of telly has taken 15 years of learning how to do that. 
um, and especially these big projects because they're so massive, they're so expensive, the risks are so high. You're managing a team, you're responsible for the health and safety, the life and death of the crew. You know, it's it's huge things all on your soul. You're going to remote locations, you're working on sea ice, you're so it's not something you can just acquire overnight. And um, so the filmmaking, falling in love with the filmmaking part, I'd say it's it's falling in love with the nature part and it's falling in love with the animals and the natural world that then you want to try and convey that you, you, how do you, how do I make someone I've never met or someone that has never been out there or someone that's never been to Africa care about a meerkat or care about an elephant or care about a walrus and every single animal I film or have been to film or spent time with you fall in love with. So it's kind of, for me, it was all about the desire and want and need to kind of convey to other people just the beauty in the natural world and the nuance of behavior and what makes everything that's not human interesting, if that makes sense. And then the filmmaking part takes much longer to, to kind of learn those skills and to perfect those skills and then, you know, to finally get your film out into the world. So yeah, it's a long process. <laughs> it sounds almost as though filmmaking is, is secondary. The filmmaking is a side effect. The, it's really the passion for for wildlife, it's passion for protecting the environment. And how do we do that is through the medium of film. Mm, yeah, I'd say that's exactly it. And, you know, I'm still very much all my, I'm still very much a scientist at heart. I mean, we work very closely with the scientific community. I read scientific papers on a daily basis. Um, you know, you work with incredible teams of people, field guides, um, people that spend their entire lives with the animals and you're tapping into their knowledge to fast track your own knowledge. And so wherever you go to film an animal, you work with some incredible people and it's a kind of accumulation of all of that. It's, it's people that have studied them for like decades, people that have been in the field with them for decades. And then there's us who are sort of coming in with our, bringing our kind of backgrounds and filmmaking knowledge of hopefully telling stories in a way that gets the rest of the world interested because ultimately conservation and the conservation of the planet it's it's pretty early on I was like well, how is that best placed and yes yeah, some people it's in science it's in dedicating a life to science and writing papers but I very quickly learned in academia that you know papers are very dry they're very boring they're hard to read for most people most people don't you know new scientist magazine <coughs> is a populist way of getting across and even that is quite heavy going for most people so if you want to make an impact and reach everyday people how do you do that well david attenborough does that um and his he has always done that because he's just such a brilliant storyteller and he kind of this I, well, in england anyway there's there's no one that doesn't love david attenborough he is revered in this country and i think that's such a powerful thing actually capturing people's imaginations and having an authoritative voice who can get through to no matter what color creed anything you are you know he speaks to every single person on a human level and that's a really powerful thing. And so I wanted to be a part of that, really. I wanted to use my enjoyment of nature and my passion for it and the visual side of it. I love the visual side of it and combine all those elements, I guess, to trying to make a difference globally in what we do and speak out about conservation ultimately so that people can start to be aware of the impact humans are having on the natural world and that they care enough to do something about it and that we give them the tools to do something about it. And we make people understand how they can do that and how they can, how they in their small little ways can actually impact, you know, the planet in a, in a better way, in a more sustainable way. How would you classify yourself? What would you call yourself? <laughs> um, I'd, well, I guess it, I, a wildlife filmmaker is what I call myself. Um, loosely I guess I mean I saw your thing about being are you a photographer are you you know yes I do photography um it doesn't matter you, but it doesn't that's just it's just an expression of that passion coming through in the form of film for now and it probably will translate into something else in the future <laughs> yeah I don't I don't know I don't know if I'll be in filmmaking forever I don't know I will have to see <laughs> it's um I just all I know is that the natural world is at the heart of everything I do and that if I move on to something else, it's because I want another way of getting through to people. I've often thought about going into the more policy driven areas to make sure that policymakers are making the laws and putting them in place to trust the natural world. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where it takes me. I'm not. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's obvious to me. And I think it's obvious to 
people that are listening, you very much, you very much remind me of Dr. Jane Goodall, somebody that spent so much time in the wilderness with animals, fell in love, and needed to share that with people, needed to share that message with people. And it, it was the same for you. Your first time in the Kalahari, there was no, there were no cameras there. You fell in love with the natural world. You fell in love with wildlife, and you needed a way to express that to the world. Mm. It's for uh, putting me in the same breath as Jane Goodall. That's quite a feat. Um, <laughs> um, I don't see myself quite like that, but I, yeah, no, you're right. I, first and foremost, there is a, just a total serene beauty to experiencing wildlife firsthand. And, you know, I think that comes from the power of observation. Like I think the ability to notice nuance and things around you and great photographers have that, you know, no matter what, great filmmakers, great photographers, they, they are able to spot emotions and situations and behaviors unfolding in front of them that other people just miss, you know, and I often do, I often look at people that way, you're watching at bus stops and it's a subtle nuance of the way a stranger looks at another person or the interactions or, you know, there's the other day, it broke my heart, there was a blind man and he was clearly lost at the bottom of the, the street near where I live and people just walking past him and kind of like avoiding him. And I just went up to him sort of, you know, obviously very aware that he couldn't see and I didn't want to scare him. And I just said, look, I'm sorry, you look lost. Can I help you? And can I guide you somewhere where you're trying to get to? And he's like, oh, I'm trying to find the library. I was like, I know where that is. And I was like, I can take you there. And so I sort of, I said, you know, take my hand and I'll lead you. So I put his hand on my arm and I was describing to him exactly where he was. And he was like, you're really good at this. You know, how come you, you know, you're very visual the way you describe things. I was like, yeah, I'm, wildlife filmmaker I have to describe all the time to cameramen like how a cheetah moves and what it's and preempt its behavior understand how it's going to how it's going to move out of the bush and which one it's going to ambush and you know the whole time you're describing the shot to the cameraman because he's looking down a lens and can only see a partial field of view so the whole time you're talking about changes in the landscape what's going on and the action you're trying to preempt it so there's a lot you have to be very calm and predict your situation and read and understand behaviors and that of others. And that translates through to people as well. You know, when you look at people and see that, I mean, I could, it's clear as day to me, this man was lost and yet lots of people were either ignoring it or not even seeing it. Um, so I just, I would encourage everyone to open their eyes more. You know, it's, it's all around us and everything, even the pigeons sort of mating and male pigeons chasing females, right? Yeah. The whole time there's like little dramas going on in everyday lives in cities, wherever you are in the world, you can, you can see it if you open your eyes to it. Wow. There's so much time for observation, mm. and, but not judgment. And I think that's, I think it's a really, it's a really, really interesting distinction because you spend so much time in nature watching animals. And I mean, certainly in relationship to ourselves, at least for me, I, we spend so much time judging ourselves. And when we, when we judge, we're no longer in a position where we're objectively watching and learning, watching what's happening. What have you learned about yourself spending so much time in nature watching animals? Um, I think you learn how much you can live without. Like, you know, you build up the fabric of society around us that kind of swallows us in a way. And when you go out to these places where you live on a beach in a Russian hut in the middle of nowhere, and you have nothing, you only really need water. You need fresh water and you need some food and pretty much everything else, the materialistics of life, even clothing, everything, you know, it's, you don't really need it to survive or to live or to, you don't have a better time because of it. And I think it's only when you strip away all of that, that you realize you strip everything down to the fabric of who you are as a person and who everyone else is of people and, and what it means to survive. And I guess, watching wildlife and seeing how they survive and how they live and how they hunt and how they, you know, interact with their young. And you try to take that into your everyday life because then you return to society and you return to all that kind of materialistic aspirations and consumer driven culture that we now live in. And it's a lot of it's rubbish. And a lot of the happiest people I've seen and experienced are people with nothing, you know, and often, I don't know. I, I don't know enough about it, but I think often with increased standard living, it doesn't bring happiness always, you know, and it breaks mm. these up. It makes us more, I've never felt so alone as I have in a city. I lived in London for a couple of weeks doing work experience and that was horrendous. Like mm. I didn't know many people in London, but just the psychology of having 
thousands of people on my doorstep and yet being so alone. I've never felt so alone as I have in a city, whereas you can be on your own in nature, totally on your own, and you don't feel alone. And it's, I think mental health issues and anyone struggling from that, perhaps, I don't know, maybe there's a cure to be found in nature, maybe removing people from the kind of stresses of society could be a good thing. It's, who knows, but it's, for me personally, I, I'm way more at home in that kind of environment where you're stripped back to nothing. Um, and some of my best memories are with people and strangers on location who I've only met for four or five weeks at a time and got to know really well and had amazing conversations with and learned so much from and different cultures. And, and like you say, just seeing animals go through what they go through on a daily basis and just puts it into perspective. Have there been any personal challenges that being alone in nature has helped you cope with or transcend? Um, it's funny, isn't it? I don't know. I think I'm quite a, <laughs> I'm a sort of person that, um, I'll always think about if you, if I have something hard, difficult to deal with in life, I always kind of, I guess, try to put it into context. So I try to kind of step outside of it and think about it and think about everyone's different perspectives and how they see a situation. I kind of always done that. And so, and part of that may be come from watching how nature is. I mean, nature is an incredible, if you want to learn lessons from life, look at nature. It's incredibly cruel in a way. I think humans can also be incredibly cruel, but equally, I think we show extreme altruism that you don't always see in nature. Um, you know, someone saving another human being at the cost of their own life, for example, is something you wouldn't really see a wildebeest do. <laughs> you know, it's each for their own. But yet there's extreme resilience, you know, no matter they pick themselves up and dust themselves off like penguins we were filming and they, they have to climb these icy slopes to get to their chicks every day and they fall over all the time and they kind of climb up and then they slide back down and it's just like, and they just get on and then do it or they've just got out and they've been attacked by a leopard seal and they've got a big hole in their side and they're climbing up, the, you know, regardless, they just get on and do it. And it's kind of, it's just, there's no other option not to, I guess. It's that kind of survival gene and instinct. and. Right. Um, so I don't know. I think I, I think I take comfort in the fact that in a weird way, people that's people who are religious and say, well, you know, how can you not believe in anything? And I think actually, I find it quite comforting. I think that there isn't a life after death and that, that we go back to the earth and that all the atoms that make us, us and make, you know, goes into the earth and maybe that becomes a tree or maybe it becomes stardust again, who knows, but I take comfort in that personally. That doesn't worry or scare me. Um, so I don't know, maybe I have a weird, <laughs> weird outlook on that sort of stuff. Well, I, I always find it so inspiring. I'm, I'm actually, I was, I, I, one of the last questions that I had on my list, which I was going to save to the end, but I thought, well, let me see. I don't know if I should ask this question was, what are your thoughts on the afterlife? I don't know why I put that in there. <laughs> so it was interesting to hear you just say that, but I always find it inspiring to meet people that don't believe in an afterlife who are living altruistic and, and selfless lives. There's one thing to be living for this idea of some reward, but I just find it so inspiring. Like I remember meeting Dr. Richard Leakey, who's just a very pronounced atheist. And he's one of the most selfless people you could, you could ever meet in your life. And he's, I said, well, what do you think happens when you die? He's like, well, you, when you die, you die. And, that, and that's it. Mm. And that to me is so inspiring. Is that, is that what you believe? Mm. What, do you, yeah, what, do you feel, what do you feel happens? I just think when you die, you die. And that I, I think, I mean, I think that is one thing when you are closer to nature and you've been lucky to experience nature, you know, you see death all the time and we are so removed from it really. And especially in our Western cultures, um, other cultures are different. You know, they look at the dead and they mourn the dead and they have open coffins and they, you know, there's all sorts of rituals that go on about death and, and the afterlife. But I, I just kind of think it's the cycle of life and it's, it's such an incredible story that that cycle of life and how evolution's happened and how life has created on the planet. And we're a part of that system. And I, and I, and I don't know, I just, I guess I just don't believe that in the arrogance that there is an afterlife in a way. And if you can say it's arrogance, but it's, I just think you need to make every moment count. And then the more finite your life is, the more you do that. And the more you appreciate, it makes you almost appreciate life more. I feel I appreciate life more because I, 
I am so excited to be alive and so excited to have had that opportunity and be a part of it that I don't want to waste a second of it. And I think the more that you look at that and have that philosophy about life, the less you waste of it and the less you dwell in it and the less, hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm lucky I'm not a kind of a depressive nature or anything. And so therefore I can take that view on life and, and, you know, hopefully make a difference, hopefully be altruistic and all those things and, and leave the earth a better place than you kind of joined it I don't know it's it's a difficult one that we all think about and struggle with I guess in our own ways throughout our lifetime but I I am at total peace with the fact that there is I don't think an afterlife and that people you know I think it can be a better place for it in a way that makes sense (laughs) have you had any experiences that Near-death experiences, had some of them. <laughs> no, not quite. Have you? <laughs> well, being close to a couple of polar bear instances and situations I've been in where I think, God, this, this is, yeah, this is not a pretty place to be in, but there's no point in panicking about it because you can't do nothing about it. <laughs> so, you, so you would not consider yourself a, a spiritual person? I would. I would consider you a deeply spiritual person. How do you define spiritual? Mm. Connection. I think I think the aspect of uh, of devotion, of giving yourself over to something bigger than yourself, greater than yourself. I think that's very clear in 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 what you do and and who you are. And if you look at somebody like Dr. Jane, or if you look at somebody like Sir David Attenborough, there's there's always this aspect of of giving yourself over to a cause. Uh, devoting yourself to something that's greater than yourself, almost to the point of of risking your own of risking your own life, which you have. So I think it's that aspect of devotion that ties people together. Yeah, I think it's for me. I don't. For me, there is nothing more. The thing I love, the connection I love the most, that is when you sit in the bush in the middle of let's say it's Africa or somewhere and you you can capture a snapshot because humans are predators and you know a lot of animals are scared of you so an antelope will run away if it sees you or whatever and if you can sit so still in the bush and you've been there all day and you're waiting for something to happen and it's just you and an antelope walks past and it doesn't see you or a cheetah walks past and it doesn't see you and there's something so beautiful in being a human and observing the natural world in a state where humans aren't influencing it. Do you see what I mean? It's so rare to do that because mm. we never in a situation where we're not influencing a situation, if that makes sense. Because you become a part of it. Yeah, if you're, if you're seen by an animal, sensed by an animal, smelt by an animal, that's it. The animal reacts differently. Yes, it can be relaxed, but it, it's still different. Whereas you, if you can be invisible almost and know that that animal has not clocked you at all, it's such a beautiful moment I've, and it hasn't weirdly it doesn't happen that often because normally you can be seen or smell or heard and it is I, you know i had it with a small antelope in africa and a cheetah went past and was, you know and, and it and genuinely they hadn't seen me either so you're you're tuned into that world and you're not a lot you know the, the world's not reacting to you and you're just watching it as if you weren't there and as if you didn't exist and that's that's a powerful moment those moments are a rare i mean the other the other thought experiment is which is a really interesting one because even for me the answer is pretty kind of rubbish but if you if you ask yourself what what is the furthest you've ever been from another human being in your life what's the furthest physical distance and for most of us it's not that far at all i mean i for me i'd say probably wow. 20 kilometers maybe and not for a sustained period of time, probably for about a couple of hours when I, I was on the top of a mountain in Sweden and the cameraman I was with had to go back to another base, 20 K away. And I don't think there was another living person within 20 kilometers of me, but it was only for half a day, say, but the rest of the time there's always been another person with me or another person you know, within five kilometers of me, probably. The Meerkat Project's another one where maybe within, I don't know, three kilometers, four kilometers, there might be another human being. 
But it's interesting once you think of that and it's like, it's not often you're ever, humans are such sociable organisms. There's not, we're never really on our own. Even if, you know, even if you like to think we are. It's, why, do, why do you ask that question? What does it do? What does it do for you? I asked that question because I had to, I worked in an animal intelligence show <clears throat> about looking at the reasons what intelligent life forms. And one of them is um, sociality, you know, and understanding others and empathy towards others and theory of mind and um, social hierarchy and intention of others and all those things make you, you know, there's one thing predicting the physicality of the, the natural world and what it does like gravity or whatever you learn that oh, it falls on the floor and you know, our perceptual systems kind of understand that and learn that. But it's another thing, understanding and reacting and behaving and preempting the social behavior of another thing, because that could be anything. And that, that other thing can react in lots of different ways, depending on the context and circumstance. So the argument is that it makes you more intelligent because you have to preempt a more intelligent being than the physical world, which is another being. So humans are incredibly socially aware. Um, in, in terms of a species, I mean, only social insects are more social than humans or, you know, thereabouts. Um, and so when you look at us as a kind of social organism on the planet, it's and, and how we have replicated and the scale and size and, you know, all of that and how the universal kind of emotions and laughter and, you know, we all have the same tribes that are separated from humanity for thousands of years meet up with modern day people and it's still the same kind of basic emotions right like we still have the same we can still have converse with them and have conversations with them so um we're exceptional we are i would argue probably our success has been down to the fact we're incredibly social and we can stand in a packed tube full of people and not fight each other you know we can be in cities and not fall apart we can we're happy to have division of labor where you know none of us know how to make an iphone yet someone has to do the mining somewhere and someone has to do that. Someone does this tech and stuff. You know, we're great in the sums of our parts, which is what social insects are like. So that led me to think about, okay, so, you know, we all like to think, I guess that we're individuals and that we're independent and everything, but actually we're the fabric of who we are and what we are and what we've achieved in civilization is all based upon other people. We can't, we can't be who we are and what we are without other people. And so therefore how kind of, how far have we ever, what's the furthest we've ever been from another person? And then when you start thinking about that, it's for the majority of us, it's not actually that far. There's a kind of, it's a weird thought process, but I, yeah. Does I it give you a sense of independence or interdependence? I don't think it does either. I think it just shocked me. I think I, I think I had the perception I'd, I do a lot of work in the wilderness and a lot of work in places, remote places around the world. And I think it shot me into thinking I'm not as, I guess I'm more dependent on people and civilization society than I ever thought. And I'm not as independent as I would like to be, maybe as free as I'd like to be. <laughs> yeah, I understand completely what you mean. And you, you said that the physical world is another being. And what you're talking about, you're talking about equanimity, you're talking about it's empathy, it's, it's compassion, and that we need one another to survive, but we also need to take care of the planet in order to survive. Yeah, so, selfishly. <laughs> some, well, that's right. And something, that, something I'm very interested in is in your particular shoes, how do you, what gives you hope? How do you not lose hope in the face of everything that's going on in terms of deforestation, in terms of melting of the polar ice caps, in terms of climate change, how do you not lose hope? What gives you strength and inspiration, enables you to bring that to people around the world? A um, couple of things. I think, you know, it's hard. It is hard. It's, it's, I'd say hope is a really hard one to kind of not lose sight of, but if you have to be, you can't, you can't let yourself not have hope because otherwise you just give up. Right. And I've never been someone that just gives up. I like, it took me a while to get into the wildlife filmmaking industry, but the reason I got in was because I didn't give up. Um, I just kept at it. And you know, if someone says no, you just keep going. And so I think that a lot of people don't realize what a big difference that they can all make as a collective. And it goes back to this thing of it's, it's greater than some of its parts, right? You think in your individual part, what can I do? And everyone always says that they think it's this huge climate change and, the, the human induced problems that we're putting on the planet. And they always think it's just, well, you know, if I don't get in a plane, someone else will, if I don't 
cycle right. to work, someone else will drive and they kind of put it on to like other people all the time. They just think, well, what impact can I have? I'm not going to do anything. I'm just one person, 7 billion. And the thing is, if we all felt like that, nothing would ever change. No, you know, we would never create or instigate any good and we would all just give up and it would be a rubbish. Pl- and I just think humans are better than that. And we're better than that. And we're, we can talk about it. We can communicate. We have got global communications to most of the world now. Why not try? Um, and, and I just tell people that you can, every, consu- every decision you make in a sustainable way, every piece of clothing you buy, every food you buy, every car transport you get into, every holiday you book, they're all choices. You know, you can choose to do them sustainably or not. You can choose to think about them or not. You can choose to ignore them or not. And so I think the first thing is education. It's making everyone aware that there's a problem. And then the next thing is acceptance. It's making everyone accept that there's a problem. So, you know, you've got to, these are the facts. This is what's happening. You can't deny that anymore. You've got to accept that. And once you accept you have a problem, it's a bit like anything like alcohol abuse, drug abuse. Once you accept you have the problem, it's only you that can do something about it and you can, that can change and you can set the wheels in motion to make changes in your life. And no one's perfect and everyone has relapses and no one, you know, you can't solve it instantly. And it's a part and a fabric of who you are. And so working on our planet and doing, knowing what I know and the level of knowledge that I know about the planet, it battles me every single day. Every single time I throw something away, every time I get into the car, every time I take a flight, every time, every single action I do, I think of the environment and it, and I'm not perfect by any means, but I strive to kind of be better. And I strive to eat less meat. I strive to buy sustainable clothing that hasn't got plastics in it. And I strive to use ecological products on my house when I'm cleaning it. I try to, all those things, I try to cut down on cars, transport and cycle if I can and all all those elements I've changed my bank to sustainable banks that um you know a lot of people don't know that banks everyone puts their money somewhere when you're paid you know for your work it goes into a bank account those banks then invest your money globally and they invest in whatever they want in arms trade fossil fuels most people don't realize that just by your money being in a bank account you're enabling um unethical decisions to be made why don't you put your money into an ethical bank that doesn't support that and who supports renewable energies, who supports local businesses, who supports um, all the things that you think should be supported that aren't actually supported. And that's quite a shocking thing. And loads of people don't realize that. So switch to green energy providers. There's lots of stuff we can do in our everyday life and just putting consumer pressure on and by not buying things. And that's the other thing people don't realize. It's not, it's often inaction that makes changes as much as actions. So, you know, by not taking the flights, you're reducing demand on flying abroad. And so airports don't expand. You see, it is, it, as opposed to the argument, well, if I don't sit on that flight, someone else will. It's like, yeah, but equally, if you don't put the demand on the flight in the first place, it won't be made anymore. And you see that all the time with food preferences. You know, look at how the kind of soy and oat and alternative kind of vegan foods has risen in kind of, popularity and therefore you're seeing a lot more in shops and look how other stuff has fallen so consumers have a lot of power in in what they buy where they spend their money where they put their money where they bank who they choose and that has differences and that has real kind of behaviors that translate to businesses which translates to policy and governments so i think everyone can make yeah make a difference (laughs) sorry it's a really long answer but it's like (laughs) how do you um, I think, yeah, I think about it so much and I, and it's, it's a hard one to kind of get people to understand really. I just... It's not hard to understand. It's very easy to understand. What we have to do is change ourselves and we don't want to change. Mm. We don't want to change because we want to eat, we want to eat meat and we want to drive our SUV and we want to fly all over the world. And we don't really want to think about the consequences. I'm just speaking about myself. Mm. Uh, it's very humbling to be speaking with you because it's just so clear. Your message is just so clear, which is that we have to change. Mm. We have to change ourselves. And I can say, well, well, Sophie, what are the, what are the five things we can do every day? It's it's really not about action. It's about internal shift that has to happen in mm. here. It's it's also one of the big things I learned on our planet is that <clears throat> I always thought that it had to be like, Oh, you have to give up meat. That's it. You never eat meat again. All that sort of stuff. What I kind of don't think that anymore. I think if you, if you cut down to like 
eating, not eating meat for five days a week and then eat it as a treat for two days a week, fine. You know, that is, if everyone did that, the impact would be huge. So you don't have to give up something. It doesn't have to be a hardship. Being environmentally friendly and sustainable doesn't have to be a hardship. And you can support industries and businesses that are creating compostable plastics, you know, all these sorts of things. People are having solutions. There is the tech and the knowledge and the will. We're just not putting our money in the right places to support it and the choices in the right places to back it. And if we can do those things, it's not necessarily a hardship. You know, if we, re- if we have renewable energies and all those things, you don't have to give up transport systems. You can still travel. If we can support green energies that we have electric planes, we can still fly. So the whole kind of like really hard liners that are sort of like, you know, environmental do-gooders who just make you feel terrible about your life the whole time it doesn't have to be like that you know we there is there is a sustainable future where we can still do things and we can still live our lives and we can still eat kind of stuff that tastes like meat if we support it and the thing is getting that message out there because it doesn't i think a lot of people just think oh i have to give up this i'm never going to do that so why bother and and i just say that's not the right attitude we it's not like that you don't have to do that but you can choose to support companies that are trying to you know, like if it's spending an extra 5p or 10 cents on a company that supports sustainable packaging rather than the one that doesn't, it's things like that, little things that doesn't have a massive cost to you, but that supports businesses that can make changes. Let's talk about that one change, not eating meat. Take us through the ripple effect of how that would benefit the planet, just that one action, reducing our meat consumption. Um, so it depends on the meat, but um, I think it's sort of looking the rough reading I've done around it is that beef is the worst. So if it's red meat in particular, um, chickens less bad. Um, but the repercussions are everything. So if you think about, if you take a cow, um, the cow has space to, it, it needs space to live. It's normally intensively farmed, which requires, um, not being out in the fields, eating the grass as it grows, it requires feeding. So what does it need for feed? It needs protein. And so they often cut up a lot of other animals or use a, you know, fish to feed it like lots of other proteins which is comes from other animals so you're killing animals to feed to animals and then it's a really inefficient kind of system so the protein um i can't remember the exact figures but the protein gets lost because the animal uses energy and all sorts of other things so the energy going in to feed a cow the amount of energy required for that versus the amount that you get out of eating the cow is something like 60 percent loss you know or bigger i can't remember it's, it's some it's some huge amount of the energy is taken out of the system. So it's a really inefficient way to get protein. And the only reason in favor of it is because you like the taste of it. I mean, literally that is it. We know we can get our protein in other ways now. We know we can grow our protein in plants and get equal amounts of protein. In terms of what we need to live and survive, we don't need to be getting our protein through red meat. That's, it's, it's not a thing. And actually, it's also creating to obesity problems. It's creating cholesterol, heart stroke. So then it becomes an economic and social problem within countries because I don't know about America, but certainly in the UK, obesity is a massive problem. Heart disease is a massive problem. Well, if you cut red meat out of your diet, you would be solving that problem and easing those kind of social reforms and economic. So it's, it's how do you, there's so many facets to it. Like that, And obviously if you can't just shift everything, if I say plant-based diet and everyone starts eating soy, we're going to chop down the rainforest of soy. So it's, it has to be managed and we have to be managing ourselves and we have to be constantly looking at the system and realizing, okay, the global demand at the moment for this product, but that's going to have, you know, so how about we shift it? We need to spread it out and not have, you know, farming. We need to look at farming and we need to look at the areas available for farming. And in order to feed a growing population, we need to work out what percentage of the land we can afford to produce what crops and what things. And we need to look at it at that level um, because at the moment there's not physically not enough land currently (laughs) to feed the level of people on the planet in the way in which we're doing it there is just simply not enough land we would have to everything would have to be converted into farmland and even then we wouldn't feed everyone so it needs to change and it will have to change because it's physically impossible and you'll get famines and also with climate change climate instability that's only going to you know crops will fail in areas where it's getting drier and more arid so you can imagine a, a a picture of the planet as it changes and shifts it's 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 for our own good it, i've been thinking about i'm now working on a show that i can't say much about but it, it involves mass extinctions once you get into mass extinctions it's very interesting because you get into the philosophy of nature and evolution and all those things and you look at climate and what climate's done in the past and one of the big drivers that everyone says about climate change is, oh climate's always changed the past yes climate has always changed in the past 
but it's the rate at which climate is now changing that's different. And when you look at it, it's unprecedented. The CO2 levels now compared to anything in the history of the planet is unprecedented. It's bigger than any volcano. The Permian was the largest volcano um, CO2, when CO2 levels, like it was the biggest mass extinction we've ever had. 96% of life nearly all died on the planet. And it was over a, a million years, I think, the CO2 release. Well, we're doing it in two hundred less than, well, 100 years. Um, and at the moment there'll be a lag there's a lag in the system currently between global temperatures and co2 but it's not if anything that the past historical data shows is that when co2 goes up temperature goes up i mean that is just totally undisputed that's what happens so yes we're seeing a lag there's a buffer in the system and the planet rebounds and the planet will rebound the planet has been hotter whether humans make it through that and what it's going to be like for humans making it through that in terms of famine mass movements people wildlife wildlife can in the past wildlife was free to move all around the planet and adapt and move and shift with all the and it happened in a much slower time so they had time to move and shift and now human humans and our where we live and our cities are in the way of all of that so we're blocking wildlife from moving we're also blocking ourselves from moving because of all the immigration policies and all that and and so you just see for the first time in the history of the planet in 4.6 billion years we're actually at a point in time where we're creating a potential mass extinction event and no one can move and the planet is not resilient enough because of the changes we're making and so it's the perfect storm it's not one thing it's multiple things and that's what's scary right people get through maybe they will will the planet be okay yes it will it will purge itself and then it will recover again we've seen that but we've also seen that in every single mass extinction event that's ever happened the dominant life form at the time of the mass extinction didn't recover and died out dinosaurs died out permian what the, the creatures were in, in the permian that were kind of dominant before that happened they all died out so every time you have a mass extinction and who's dominant at the moment we are so the chances are we'll probably die out <laughs> or reduce ourselves to such a small population um but it won't be a very i mean we won't be around but it won't be a very nice that's right to live on potentially um so that comes back to your thing about altruism it's like yeah, I do believe that we should be doing something about that. I do believe that we are responsible for that and that it is bigger than us. You know, it's, it, we're talking about preserving the planet for our future generations. And that is, most people aren't prepared to think that far ahead. Most people are out for selfish gain. They want to make a lot of money in their short lifetime. Um, they want to consume stuff. They don't want to have to think about it. They don't want to have to take responsibility for it. They want to deny it's even happening. And I just think, how can you do that? How can you... I just think that's, it's too big an issue and too big a consequence not to do something about it or try and do something about it. Um, and I don't want to be part of that generation that kind of is blamed for that. I want to be the generation that's seen to do something about it, not the generation that's seen to be blamed for not doing something about it. I, I, don't, I don't even have to speak. Sophie, I could, I could really, I could listen to you talk forever. There's, a, there's an incredible program uh, was filmed, I think, more than ten years ago. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you were there. Called the Selfish Green. I yes. Were you there? That affected me. No, I remember that talk. Do you remember the Selfish Green? I do. There was so no. there was one, there were there were two moments. Well, I remember Dr. Leakey saying at some point in an interview. Well, he I'm well, I'm sure he said it many times. I remember him saying. Human beings are a product of evolution. We will undoubtedly be a product of extinction. The question is just how and when. And in the selfish green, it's on YouTube. People can watch it. Dr. Jane says what may seem like an outrageous statement, but it's the most important statement. She said, in order to protect the planet, do you remember what she said? She said, the number one thing we have to do is we have to limit the population size. Yeah. We have to limit the population. No one talks about. We don't want to know. We don't want to because it's me. It's I. I want to reproduce little me's and I want to grow the me and I want to grow my family. But but there there comes a point where uh, it can be it can be quite selfish. Mm. And even just the thought. I have a friend. He has a few kids now, and he said, uh, "Chris, I'm not going to have any more kids." He said, "But I, I I will probably adopt a few more. I'll probably adopt a few more kids." He said, "There's many many people that need homes. That's that's a very taboo subject. We can talk about that." Mm. What you're talking about. I mean, it's, it's just so incredible to speak with you because you you're hundreds of years wiser than your age. 
you're talking about selflessness. You're talking about altruism. And the way that you do it in our planet is through empathy. We have to connect. We have to, right now, we, me, I, I see the planet as them. The planet is a them and I'm a me. It's separate, but it's not. Mm. I was driving yesterday and I saw somebody just throw something out the window and, you know, their car just on the street, whatever. And uh, I have done that. I know I've done that many times. I can't do that anymore because I feel incredibly guilty because I know that Dr. Jane would yell at me. And But the point is that, no, I, I can't do that anymore because I know. But I've done that many times. And But we think it's not affecting us. But when we throw trash out of the window of our car, we're like throwing it from one part of our body to another part of our body. And what you do in your work is you create empathy so that it dissolves that wall between them, the planet being them, and we're over here seeing us as interconnected. And that is, I think, what will, what will inspire the action. Is that right? I hope so. It's interesting you use litter as a thing. Um, I live on a, in the countryside and there's a lot of fly tipping that goes on on my roads. And I try... What is fly I, tipping? Um, it's when people put loads of household waste into their van and throw it out into the countryside. They really? dump like washing machines and, and um, duvets and mattresses and building waste and sometimes just normal garbage. Like they just tip it out. Anyway, it happens on a regular basis on our road. And, um, and I never, I, so I literally can't do that. I was brought up and raised, I can't spitting, chewing gum, anything. I've never, ever, ever thrown anything onto the floor since I was six, six or seven years old. You know, my mum brought me up and it instilled us that we, you know, you didn't do that. And I, and I think about the fly tipping and think, okay, well, you know, it ends up in landfill anyway. So in a kind of philosophical point of view, like, does it matter that it's there? I mean, the council come and take it away, but is it doing much harm there? Well, it's probably, it's probably better there than it's in the oceans. But the point is, for me, it's the selfishness of the act that gets me. It is the total disregard for other people. Someone else is going to go and clear up after you. You've thrown something out of the car. And you're not thinking about the person who has to then clear up after you and, and, and the damage that does or any of those repercussions. You're just that selfish, thoughtless act is a kind of like, I don't really care about the rest of the world. Is, that's, what I, I, that's how I guess I internalize something like that. And it's funny because the war is seen, which you've probably seen in the end of my show. It's, an inter- it's a very interesting thing watching the impact that's been having on the planet and the reaction it's been having. And for the most part, 90%, I would say it's a really great reaction. People are really horrified by it. They don't like watching it. It's the uncomfortable truth, but they care enough that they want to do something and they want to do good. And they write to me and say, how can I do good? I saw your war's thing, you know, what can I do? And I've had loads of that and I reply to all of them and say what they can do, little things they can do. And, and, and that's great. But then there've been other people that are totally too shocked by it, that they go the other way, that they can't watch it and it's horrendous. And how dare you put that up? And, you know, we shouldn't be watching that. And, you know, you're kind of using the emo- you're using animals dying to kind of forward an environmental agenda and all this stuff. And it's, and it's, it's interesting because I, I can't identify with those feelings why someone feel like that, but I have to accept that that's how some people think and how some people feel. And it's, it's a, it's a really hard one. There's not a day go by since I filmed that. And since I witnessed that, that I don't think about wars falling off cliffs. Can you, can you, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. And that's, I first and foremost, don't want to ever use an animal's death in vain. Like for me, we went through what we went through and it was all about telling, saying to people, look, this is going on in the Arctic because of the loss, ultimately, because of the loss of sea ice. And Boris are dependent on the sea ice. We are melting the sea ice through, you know, um, human-induced climate change through the burning of fossil fuels. Um, how that will impact Boris in the future? Will they go totally extinct? I don't know. But the point is that we are destroying their home, which is, is the sea ice. And to me, that was a really important message. I was like, I can't make a film on the sea ice and the frozen worlds and not show that. If I had witnessed that and not put it out on television, that to me would have been a greater sin. <laughs> like I can't, I can't, I couldn't have done that as a filmmaker. I just couldn't. And if Netflix had turned around to me and said, 
well, no, I'm sorry, it's too, it's too difficult. We can't put that out on telly. They didn't. Netflix were totally supportive of it. If they had, I don't know what I would have done because I just so feel, feel so strongly that that would not have been the right thing to have done. Um, but it's interesting. It's, taught, it's been a real eye-opener, <laughs> the whole thing, um, and watching people react to it. And Yeah. <laughs> Sophie, talk to us about that moment. Talk to us. Tell us, tell us exactly the scene of what you're talking about. This is from Our Planet on Netflix, and it's in the Frozen Worlds episode, which you produced and directed. Mm-hmm, that's right, yeah. Okay, so spoiler alert, if you watch this episode, tell us tell us the scene that you're talking about, what unfolds, what happens. Mm. So um, it's on the coast of, of Northern Russia, and we've um, purposely kept, kept the name of the location out of the public domain because we want to protect the war. So we don't want people kind of flocking there to see this. Um, I don't know if in case people would make the way to Russia to see it, but um, we protected it because of the war. And, but it happens in the Northeastern coast of Russia. And um, we went to film the largest gathering of walrus on the planet, which was discovered in 2009, over a hundred thousand walrus hauling out or gathering on a large beach. Um, What we didn't know happened was these this cliff location that walrus would climb to the top of these 80 meter cliffs and they worked their way up there. I didn't even think walrus were capable of climbing up cliffs. Um, so that came as a shock because um, they got to the top of the cliffs and they would basically as the beaches fill up below, what happens is the walrus will gather. They're very social. They come out in groups together and the beaches fill up. And then as the beaches fill up, they spread out and around and upwards and some of the, usually at night, they go even further up to the top of these cliffs. When we came back the next day and you've got all these groups of walrus at the top. And then when the ones below them leave and they go back, you know, after they've rested for a few days in between feeding, they go back and they, they return to the sea. And of course, they're quite, because they're sociable, they all want to go together. Um, so the ones below leave and the ones on the top can sense the ones below leaving. And they don't know how they, some work it out, very few. I think we saw maybe... 20 to 30 work it out and come back the way they came but the rest of the ones that were up on top didn't work it out and um they essentially teeter on the edge for ages and you can see them they kind of know that there's an edge there but they they don't know they don't know how to solve this problem they like they want to get to the sea it's straight in front of them but down is a massive vertical drop and they don't know any other way they don't realize to walk back the way they came they don't they don't think of that and so they literally just walk off the cliffs um I'm watching a large animal the size of, you know, between one to two tons, huge. I mean, much bigger than a human falling off a cliff, um, knowing what's going to happen to it when it falls and, you know, and having to film it is, it was horrendous. I mean, there's nothing you can describe. You, you, you don't want to see it. You don't want it to happen. You don't want to see it. You don't want to be there. You don't want to experience any of it. And yet you think, okay, well, they can't do this in vain. At least the one thing we have is that if we film it and people see it, then there's a chance that we might be able to do something about this. I mean, we probably can't because the sea ice is going to melt anyway. But, you know, there's something we can do about the state of the planet and people waking up. And if it takes a scene like that for people to really grasp a hold of the changes that are currently going on and the rate of change that are currently going on, then I think it wasn't in vain. How many walruses do you think died in that moment? We saw, I mean, overall, um, they died from stampedes um, as well as falling off these high cliffs. And um, it's hard to say. All we can do is count the dead bodies. Of course, overnight things happen that we don't, we're not there for. But I guess when we saw the ones directly falling, we must have seen several hundred um and then the number of dead bodies that so we had a scientist with us who counted all the dead bodies and there were about of the ones we counted so i'm sure there were ones that were washed out to sea or that died out to sea that we didn't count but um there were 650 bodies on the shore so yeah of a haul out that's about 7,000 walrus so nearly 10 percent at least a conservative figure would say 10 percent of the animals that came ashore uh, were killed. <clears throat> yeah, so pretty horrible. <clears throat> wow. Blow my nose. Up. 
Um, yeah, what did, you, it was, what did you feel in that moment? Um, the falling, pretty dis disbelief, I think, that it was actually happening. You know, they've been, you'd see them on the edge and then you'd be like, no, that one's going to go. It's literally going to go. And you'd, the heartbreaking moment where a mum kind of pushed her baby off first and yeah. Um, luckily, because of the position of the cliffs, we weren't so close that we could hear them crashing down or see the kind of awfulness at the bottom of the cliffs very kind of graphically but the really heartbreaking the bit that got me and there's a making off clip about it but the bit that got me was the fact that we were surrounded by all these dead walrus and some of them were still alive and they kind of washed up and crawled up onto the beaches and they were still breathing and shivering and you knew that before the day is out they'd be dead and that was heartbreaking. It's like, because it wasn't a quick death. It wasn't like they just fell off a cliff and instantly died. It was like they fell off a cliff, got these horrendous injuries, hauled out on the beach, and then however many hours, days later, they would die and they would just lie there. Um, and you watch them die. And that's, that was, yeah, that was really hard to watch an animal literally dying <laughs> slowly very slowly it's it's just it's just so clear why that scene is so important for the show mm. what is what is your overall mission what is your overall hope for our planet and the impact that it will have i hope it will reach a lot of people globally um i hope it'll inspire a lot of people globally i think look the frozen worlds film was the, always going to be the one that had the hardest strongest message because it's ice in a warming planet, it melts and it's going to have consequences. Okay. Equally, there are some really positive stories like comeback whales are making a comeback since the kind of ban of commercial whaling back in the seventies, there was a global ban, you know, came together. They decided they would um, no longer, they banned the command, they banned the hunt of commercial whaling. And um, we've seen humpback whales and other whale numbers kind of increase. And so that's great. It ends with, um, I think it's program, I can't remember, it's one of the coastal, no, the high seas, one of our planet. Um, and it ends, it's the very last sequence. It ends with this feeding frenzy of like 50 or 60 humpback whales that just the likes of which hasn't been seen for like 50 years. So I think, you know, the, the ability of nature to bounce back if we leave it alone, if we give it the space and we leave it alone and we don't, um, we protect it and want to care for it is really positive. It can come back. We, and humans can do it. You know, again, this altruism that comes through that is within our nature and within our power. People want to help. People want to like help the natural world. And that's an amazing thing. And that's a human thing. And I think it will be humans that solve this problem that we've created and to inspire people to do that. I would encourage everyone to kind of reconnect with the natural world, look at the little characters and stories that we tell and show you. And hopefully if you care about those characters and those stories, then you'll want to protect the planet and you'll want to, you know, right our wrongs. If there was one thing that you could share with every person individually on this planet to help inspire them to have the level of empathy that you do, what would it be? <laughs> I would encourage everyone to look through the eyes of a child because children are great at this. Children love, they're so fascinated by nature, by a bumblebee, by an ant, by a, you know, it's the smallest, tiniest, littlest things that is in everyone's back garden. Everyone has a spider in their house. Everyone has a insect. Everyone has something, a pigeon, a bird. Watch them, observe them, understand them. Um, and if you've got bigger nature on your doorstep, great, go and observe that. But just take the time out of your busy schedules take the time out of the stresses of your life and immerse yourself or try to immerse yourself in that animal and what it's like to be that animal and understanding that animal and how it works and the system it works and how it finds its food, how it finds its mate, how it survives, how it doesn't get eaten. And I just think there's a lot, if you put your head in that headspace, it's a really rewarding, resilient thing. And I think it can, it can really bring you so much joy and so much kind of pleasure and teach you a lot about life and perspective. And, and I would just say the more that you can connect with nature like that, and the more you can see the beauty in it and just appreciate the rawness and 
beauty in nature, then I just can't imagine the world would not be a better place for it. I just, yeah, it is amazing. (laughs) Sophie, it has been really a privilege to, to speak with you today. You are so clear. You're living proof that the message, we have to be the change that we wish to see in the world. And it's who you are that, that is the most inspiring. The actions and what you say, everything comes from that, but it's who you are that's, that is the most inspiring. We can watch Sophie's incredible episode, Frozen Worlds, and the series Our Planet on Netflix, and you can actually hear from her directly in the behind-the-scenes episode on Netflix for Our Planet. Sophie, thank you so much for speaking with me today. <laughs>